spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Paraphrase Denzel Washington King Kong ain't got nothing on us this week. It's episode 209 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. The reason I say that is we've got a double dose of Rampage this week. That's right. Rampage the movie is in theaters. And a couple of the actors from that movie joined me this week. First of all, Jason Lyles, who is the man behind George, of course, paired up with Dwayne The Rock Johnson. He was the motion capture actor that that brought George to life, so we'll talk to him about that this week. Also, David Ahn, that played Kaplan in the movie. We're going to be talking to him as well. Spoiler-free, by the way. Not going to be giving anything away, just in case you haven't rushed to theaters to see Rampage, the movie yet. You will be safe here. There's so much to get to. we got to get to it now. Let's do it. What we're reading is next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Malcolm Barrett from Timeless, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Pick up that tablet, fire up the laptop, or drag out the long box, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading this week and something that hasn't happened on this show in a long, long time. Changes this week. We're reviewing a Marvel comic for the first time in a long time. This one was just too good to pass up. It's Domino Number One, which of course written by Gail Simone. David Bellion does the art. Jesus Abertov does the colors. VCs Clayton Cowles on the letters. Greg Land and Frank D. Armada on the cover art. Now, of course, this follows Nina Thurman, who is Domino, who has mutant powers and kind of the powers of good luck is the best way to possibly describe it. Yes, she is a mercenary. Yes, you've seen her around Deadpool plenty. And she's out on a job in this particular book with some familiar names. I'm not going to spoil it for you in case you haven't read the book. I want you to have that element of surprise as well. That's why I like to do spoiler-free reviews. But of course, you know, something's not quite right. Something doesn't go quite right with the job. And that's where things kind of take a sideways turn, much like comics often do. But what I didn't expect from this book, I expected it to be fun, and I honestly expected it to be a little bit on the Harley Quinn side, even though the characters don't exactly match up. It just felt like that was the vibe that was going to happen here. But it really it really was not like that at all. And it shows that the book was very lighthearted, but it digs a little deeper as well. Yes, there was humor there, but it wasn't really thrown in your face, and it just didn't seem like... It was the main element of the book, was a really, which was a really nice surprise for me, for me. I thought it added really great depth to a character that probably hasn't been given enough in the past or certainly not in the present. It just felt like this was a very deeply personal story of Nina Thurman. It wasn't just about Domino being Domino, being a badass and a wisecracker and that in that kind of a Deadpool vein. It was about giving her depth of character and you see her struggle with her identity you see her struggle with interaction social interactions in certain aspects in this book and i thought that that was really really cool and you know it's it's kind of a going back to the to the mutants you know finding your place in the world sort of thing and things that she wants that she feels like she can't have but then she has a group of friends that are supporting her and that supporting cast i think really really helped out this book, it's like when you're watching a show and you love the lead actor and actress, but you can't really have true success if you don't have 
a nice chemistry or cast around them. And I feel like this book absolutely 100% has that. And I get serious Birds of Prey vibes when I was reading this. And of course, Gail Simone's background, Batgirl, that shouldn't be any surprise. But that's kind of what it felt like to me tone-wise. It felt like it was this group that were kind of friends, but also kind of co-workers at the same time, definitely more than acquaintances. And it feels like a relationship that grew even through the issue. And we get to see Nina kind of out of her comfort zone a couple of times in this book, which I also thought was a really, really nice added thing. There's also a gift that she's given, which I loved every minute of. Again, not something I want to spoil for you. I want you to experience this on your own. It just added another lighthearted element to the book, but it also does turn very, very serious. There's a point somewhere in the book where, and this might be a tiny spoiler, that something unexpected happens with her powers and it leads to some very, very serious consequences because it was actually another familiar name that might have a movie coming on here in a couple months that tells the group that there's someone after them, that someone has kind of marked them in a way that there's a hit out on them. So we kind of see that come to fruition a little bit, find out who it is and what the, a little bit of what that's all about, but not too, too much. I want to talk about the art because it's just it was just phenomenal throughout. I mean, you see Greg Land on the cover. You can't really go wrong there, but then you get on the interior, and David Bellion's art is amazing. So it was just such an easy read. There was also a panel where it was just Domino, and we see her from the back, and she's kind of looking down over a hillside, over some bad guys. It was just a great panel. It was just, just so, And that's a lot of what this book had. It had a lot of instances where you just couldn't help but be captivated by what was on the page. And then it had a story that was so well written. And I was expecting, I I don't mean this to sound the way it's going to sound. I wasn't expecting it to be this deep. And it was, it's, it surprised me in such a good way. And I should, I'm not surprised at all based on the fact that I love Gail Simone's work anyway, but, but it just felt like this was one of those things where it's like, Oh, maybe it'll just be a different Gail Simone book. And it wasn't. And I love the fact that it wasn't because it had a lot of personality and had a lot of heart. And it's probably one of the best Marvel books that I've read personally in a long, long time. So I'm glad I took a chance on this one. Domino number one, definitely a pull for me from Marvel and one that I'm going to be sticking with. Here's another book that we kind of talked about on the show before that was announced not too long ago, and it's finally here. And it's RoboCop's first offering from Boom Studios. It's Citizen's Arrest number one, written by the great Brian Wood. Jorge Calejo does the illustrations. Doug Garbark does the colors and Ed Dukeshire on the letters. Cover is done by Nimit Malavia and David Rubin. Now, this actually follows a cop named Leo who's kind of just starting out his new life when it all gets violently ripped away from him. I say violently. I don't mean that in the literal sense. But things kind of take a turn because the OCP is actually brought back to be the privatized police force. Now, was kind of less intense than I was expecting. It's, it's kind of a play off of a government corruption type of thing. And there's corporate greed and corruption going on as well. Now, we get, we, and this isn't a spoiler because, I mean, the man's on the cover. We do get to see RoboCop at one point. But there's something very different about him. And it's definitely a different vibe this time around, which I thought, was really, really interesting. And what I do love about this book, too, is that the motive for the villain, and the, or you could say villains in this book, 
is 100% clear that they do not kind of shy away from that. But overall kind of lacks a whole lot of a hook originality in this entire first issue. I like Brian Wood's work, but it just didn't seem like there was anything groundbreaking here. Maybe that's not what you're going for in this first issue. And you certainly do like the character of Leo. I think that that's a character that you can kind of attach yourself to. And you not only understand his perspective, but you understand where he's coming from throughout the book. But at the same time, it's just nothing that really grabbed me. And there was not much that was asked of the artist in the first issue either. It's not like there was anything wrong with the art necessarily. But there just weren't a whole lot of moments to do a whole lot. So it was kind of hard for me to judge the art based on this first issue because it was it was very pedestrian in a way. And maybe it's that initial presentation of, okay, here's the way the world is. Here's why this happened the way it did and setting the groundwork. And then issue two will be kind of the real issue one. But right now I'm a little bit lukewarm on this, not really ready, ready to give up on it, but I'm not really ready to take a huge dive into the next issue either. So I'm going to give this a pickup. I will definitely give it a few more issues. I think that I do like the government corruption angle, but I think it's also been done a lot that I worry that there's not a whole lot of originality in that storytelling. And I hope I'm wrong. And that's why I'm not giving up on this book. That's why I'm going to, I'm going to keep going for a couple more issues to see where this ends up. But I think that there's definitely a couple of ways that this could go. And depending on which way it goes, especially with what happens with Leo and, I think Leo is going to become more and more important as we move along here. And I don't think it'll take very long for us to find out exactly how important he's going to be. So depending on what angle they take with him is going to be how I determine how I feel about this book going forward. That's going to do it for what we're reading. Up next, going to dive into Warner Brothers Animation with another DC hit, Suicide Squad, Hell to Pay. What did I think of it? Find out next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Tara Strong, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This week, there certainly is hell to pay from a new offering from Warner Brothers Animation and, of course, DC Animation as well with Suicide Squad, Hell to Pay, which, of course, is available on DVD, Blu-ray, and digital right now. So I'm going to give you my spoiler-filled review. So, again, spoilers from here on out. Basically, this starts out with a kind of a Operation Gone Wrong from the Suicide Squad, and basically everybody dies except Deadshot in this first mission where they're going after Tobias Whale, Amanda Waller just says, you know, I'm telling you to do this, so just do it because that's classic Amanda Waller, and then something goes wrong, so you need the whole new team, which of course is comprised of Deadshot, Bronze Tiger, Killer Frost, Copperhead, Captain Boomerang, and Harley Quinn, And the thing that was the most interesting to me in this movie was that Amanda Waller, who Vanessa Williams does a fantastic job as Amanda Waller. I just loved that performance. Now, we find out that, again, spoilers here, that Amanda Waller is dying. And she has found out that there is something that might make that a little bit easier on her. Apparently, there is a card where it's kind of instead of a get-out-of-jail-free card... It's a get-out-of-hell-free card, which we find out from a guy that used to be Dr. Fate, who is now a stripper. But let's not let's not tug at that thread anymore. Let's just leave that right where it is. Although it was kind of cool finally seeing Dr. Fate in a DC animated movie, even for a few minutes, because I'm a big Dr. Fate fan. So, definitely like to see more Fate 
in these movies. But I, I don't want to go on in that because I because I could go on forever. So then there, herein lies the race to find out what's going to be going on with this card because Amanda Waller's not the only one that wants it. Vandal Savage wants it as well, and his daughter is involved in helping him get it. Then you also have Zoom that wants it as well, and Zoom has his own group with Blockbuster and Silver Banshees. So there are three different groups in sort of this race against time to try and get this card. So I thought that that was very, very interesting, and it turns out that the card was in the possession of Scandal Savage, of course, is Vandal Savage's daughter, one of kind of the very interesting parts was the relationship that Scandal Savage had and how when she died, it completely and 100% turned around her perspective and how she felt about her father. It's almost very League of Assassins in the way where the daughter's in love, dad doesn't care, dad just wants to get what dad wants, and now she doesn't die. You, we don't actually see, that's one of the few bodies that we don't actually get in this movie that actually dies. We don't see her actually die, we just see her sort of on life support, but still Scandal Savage says, no, 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 this is not how this is going to go down. So she kind of turns on her dad and lets Deadshot know where this is. And of course, a huge battle ensues. We get to find out why Zoom needs it because he has a hole in his head and he's trying to escape death from another timeline. And Vandal Savage says, hey, I might be immortal, but I am not invincible and he's close to death himself so that's why he wants it and Amanda Waller wants it for obvious reasons because there's no way she's going to be skipping hell and going right to heaven so she needs that get out of hell free card so she can go to heaven when she dies and then the deal that's struck in this that the school suicide squad doesn't know about is the dead shot basically gets he gets a pass he is out he has no more time he has left to serve if he can get this done so that's kind of the deal that he cuts on the side. Now, now that you kind of know what's going on there and kind of how it ends up working out, I'm not going to spoil, I will not spoil the ending. That's one thing I really don't want to do in this particular instance. But the group that is put together, I thought was a pretty darn good group myself. I, I thought that they all worked really well together. Of course, you've got the wisecracking Captain Boomerang who could be kind of a, a kind of a prick at times. And then you've got Harley being Harley and it's Tara Strong, so you know what's going on there. Copperhead is super creepy. Killer Frost kind of plays the Raven from Teen Titans Go role in this where she just kind of doesn't want to be there but knows that she has no other choice because she doesn't want her head to blow up, of course, until she ends up turning on her group and going with Zoom a little bit later on. And then she turns on him as kind of like a double agent sort of thing. So, And, and this was all very, very Suicide Squad. But it was just, it was a very interesting group that, they, that was put together. And of course, you know, you shove them in an RV and it's almost like National Lampoon Suicide Squad Vacation. It's almost like it shouldn't have been called Suicide Squad Held to Pay. It should have been Suicide Squad Mission Vacation or something like that because that's how it kind of felt. And in a movie that was serious, super serious and in a movie that dropped a lot of bodies and that was rated R, it definitely had that fun vibe to it because it was just so uncomfortable in that RV at times. Now, before I get on to the body count, and I definitely want to talk about that for a minute, I want to talk about Billy Brown and Bronze Tiger because I have never seen Bronze Tiger portrayed as more of a badass, first of all, and second of all, been given such depth in any possible way than he was in this animated movie. If you're a Bronze Tiger fan, this movie is 100% for you because they 
prop Bronze Tiger up big time in this movie. And, you know, you look at the cast of the Suicide Squad and what characters are involved, and you see the names like Harley Quinn and Killer Frost and Deadshot, and you're thinking, okay, somebody like Bronze Tiger, Copperhead, and those guys just going to get lost in the shuffle. No, no. Bronze Tiger was very much a big part of this story. And and even Copperhead, it's not like they sort of just left him out. He had a couple of very important roles to play in this movie and saving them a couple of times. So I just feel like everybody got their due. And that's one thing that, that you know the previous Suicide Squad movies have done as well anytime that they've been involved is that everybody kind of gets their due. Even you, had, even you had Zoom's team which was comprised, again, of Blockbuster, and then you also had Silver Banshee. I feel like everybody kind of had their moment as well. You you still had Silver Banshee that got to show that, you know, she's pretty badass as well. Then you also got to see Blockbuster crack some heads a little bit. You got to see Zoom do his thing a few times, even though he's kind of a weakened Zoom at this point. Everybody got their chance to shine. And also there's Professor Pig is in this, not for very long. And just the kind of very uncomfortable but but funny vibe that he brings to it in the scenes that he's in, it, it, it was just it was just very nice. Now there were some pacing problems with the movie. I thought it kind of dragged on a little bit. I I kind of thought that it, at times I thought maybe having multiple groups going after this is too much. But then you kind of get that whole amazing race feel, and then you understand that okay maybe. One versus the other wouldn't be enough. So now we add a third element into this, and it makes it interesting. And then you also have Vandal Savage play, kind of playing against Zoom in certain scenes as well at one point. So I kind of went back and forth on that and just landed on the fact that, you know what, this is kind of a nice extra added element. And it's not like everything's jumbled together. Everything was actually pieced together pretty well. I just, and I also thought that the ending went by a little too easy and and there was a twist there and it's like okay it just seemed like Amanda Waller just sort of accepted the ending a little bit too much or trusted Floyd Lawton maybe a little bit too much that's another thing that 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 I was a little bit surprised about but it wasn't really a deal breaker for me either and and I do love this the the scene where you know kind of Deadshot loses it and decides to go to go visit his daughter, and then you get that nice touching moment between he and his daughter at the end, and you find out that maybe he will be able to have a relationship with his daughter as well, after all. So another thing I wanted to talk really quickly about was the body count in this movie. I mean, they were dropping bodies left and right in this movie, and 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 violently so in a lot of cases. And there were some instances where it was like, well, you probably didn't have to kill that dude, but you absolutely did. And Harley knocks off his head with a baseball bat. No big deal or anything. But I, and I think that's one of the reasons that this movie was was rated R is because it did not shy away from killing almost everyone in the movie. Quite frankly, it seems like nobody was safe, even all the way up until the end, where it was like, well, that person will probably not. Nope, they're dead. Never mind. They're 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 not going to make it. So. Definitely, I mean, I shouldn't be surprised because it's a Suicide Squad movie. And again, and again it wasn't a huge deal for me. But at one point, I'm, and I'm watching the movie, I'm going, damn, there's a lot of people that died during the course of this movie that's barely 90 minutes. So, I mean, dropping a lot of bodies along the way. But when you've got the characters that you got, I guess that shouldn't be too much of a surprise. I just thought that everybody got their due. I thought it was a good movie. I didn't think it was absolutely great. 
Certainly DC Animation and Warner Brothers Animation have such a, set such a high bar with these movies, especially with Gotham by Gaslight, which I thought was fantastic. I don't think it was quite as good as Gotham by Gaslight, but it was still good. I mean, if, if you want a, fu- a movie with a fun vibe and, it, and it's not very long at all, about an hour and 15 minutes-ish, if you're not counting the credits, maybe an hour and 20 minutes, so you're not sitting there for two and a half hours wondering what's going on, everything gets right to the point. There were a couple points, again, where it, where it dragged, but then you get a nice little humor element in there, and it kind of jerks your attention back over, and you're like, oh, okay. Now, I, okay, so I'm, I'm back now. Let's see what's going on here. So not a perfect movie by any stretch, but at the same time, another fun offering from DC and Warner Brothers Animation. So if I were to give this a rating, I'm going to go ahead and give this, let me see, let me see if I can be difficult. Seven and one quarter stops at a roadside gas station slash diner out of ten. Yes, seven and a quarter. I know that's never been done before. Maybe that's not a way you can give stars out, but that's what I'm going to do this week. That's going to do it for this week in Geektainment. Up next, got some nerd news to tend to, and we'll bring it to you right here on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is comic book creator Jerry Conway, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Going to start things on a bit of a serious note because it's time for nerd news. Now, this is a first for the show because when the show originally came out, I had done a story on everything that's been going on with Stan Lee and all the recent allegations and all these things. But since the show was recorded on Friday morning, he released a statement regarding those allegations to TMZ, threatening to sue the original publishers of the story. Now, I, I made no accusations against anyone in Stan Lee's camp. I just, basically what I did was, is I gave the perspective of, you know, what does Stan Lee want? I saw the pictures of him at Silicon Valley Comic Con and was responding to other creators that had posted their concerns online with Stan Lee. I offered no specifics as to what I thought was going on, but at the same time, I thought, for the first time in this show's history, actually, this show's been going on for four years now, for the first time in the history... This is the this part of this show is being re-recorded and that is how I feel about Stanley personally. That is something that I felt was really really important to do and and yeah, maybe it screwed things up a little bit and yeah, maybe the, the, the there's something happened with the numbers on the show. I don't care. This is how much Stanley means to me personally and I don't want to give even the faintest impression that I would do something against what Stan Lee's wishes are. So for that reason, this is, I guess, somewhat of a retraction to that entire story. And I'm sure that some of you have heard the original version. And I, if I do not feel like I in any way accused anyone of anything. I was just responding to basically reports that were already out there. And whether they were false or not was not in my knowledge. I can only go by the information that I was given. But I in no way was accusing anybody of anything and I want to make sure that you the fans know that I want to make sure Stan Lee knows that basically I just wanted to know what does Stan Lee want to do and apparently Stan Lee might want to sue the crap out of anyone who has made any allegations that are false against people that work with him or for him and I completely understand that if if from Stan Lee's perspective if a bunch of stuff's going out there that's false I would be pretty upset about it too so basically 
I just want what's best for Stan Lee at the end of the day. And I just want him to live a long and happy life. I want him to know that as a fan, he doesn't need to keep doing convention appearances if he doesn't want to or if he doesn't have to. I just want to thank Stan Lee for everything that he's meant to my life, everything that he's meant to this show. And basically... What I really want is the best for Stanley. So again, I just wanted to make sure that you guys know that I wasn't making any accusations against anybody. And I know that this TMZ report wasn't directed against us here, but I am not going to go against the wishes of Stanley. And for the first time ever, I have changed this original show. And so the show is going to sound a little bit different this week, but everything else is the same. But I wanted to make sure because the report came out and I thought that I had to respond that I in no way was was accusing anyone in Stanley's camp of anything. I was responding to responding to reports. And again, just like many others, voicing my concern over the health and well-being of Stanley, which apparently seems to be pretty sound given this latest uh, report from TMZ. So Excelsior, Stan. I hope that you continue to live a long and happy life, and I hope I finally get a chance to sit down and talk with you and meet you someday. (sighs) Okay, let's take a deep breath, and now let's dive into some other nerd news this week. This one from The Hollywood Reporter. This was earlier in, in the in the week where Batgirl now gets a new writer, and it's a familiar name. It's Christina Hodson. If that name sounds familiar, she's involved with the Bumblebee movie and, of course, was previously asked to write the Birds of Prey movie. And that's where it gets interesting because you know that Joss Whedon said he just didn't have a good idea. He didn't have an idea of of where he wanted to go, so he walked away, and we applauded him for that on this show. But now this is interesting because, of course, we know that Batgirl is part of the Birds of Prey. She is the de facto leader of the Birds of Prey. So does that now mean that the Batgirl movie will sort of become a Birds of Prey movie? Not necessarily. But does that mean that she might team up with some of those members of the Birds of Prey at some point during the movie? Yeah, it could. Or it would be a nice Easter egg at the end of the movie if she happens to say, I need a team, and they show up or something like that. Or even if they don't show up. Again, you don't want to bank on a sequel. I know I've, I kind of railed against that last week. But at the same time, there are ways to go with this that don't involve the Birds of Prey. And maybe... Christina Hodson put in her Birds of Prey story, and then Warner Brothers looked at this and said, you know what, this is a good Batgirl story. Why don't we just do this as a Batgirl story? The one thing I hope they don't really do is shove Harley Quinn into this movie if Harley Quinn doesn't need to be. I know you want Margot Robbie out there as much as possible, but you've got Suicide Squad 2 that's that's possibly going to be happening, that is happening. Gotham City Sirens may or may not happen, but there are opportunities to put Harley Quinn into a movie. You don't necessarily have to put Harley in a Batgirl movie. You absolutely can. I just don't think you have to. And for anybody, I've seen a couple of fans talk about this already. Anybody worried about, oh, do we really want somebody that's working on the Bumblebee movie to be working on Batgirl? You know how those Transformers movies have worked out? Well, This is a little bit different because things have changed and now you've got AllSpark Pictures involved. We don't really know what the Bumblebee Bumblebee movie is going to be like yet. I feel like the Transformers universe is going to be completely different now than it was after that last debacle that we saw last year. But I understand that there's some hesitation here, but I think that you don't keep you don't move Christina Hodson from one project to another, especially one that's focused on a character like Batgirl, 
unless you like what you've seen of her work. So, I mean, I know that Warner Brothers and their DC movies haven't exactly been knocking it out of the park lately. Critically, I've liked plenty of them myself, and I know that that's not a popular opinion among fans and, and a lot of my fellow media members, but... I think that maybe they've finally gotten it and now they're trying to put the right people in the right positions now that they've had changes at the top to have success. So until we get casting or until we get any idea of a synopsis of what the story is going to be about, it's going to be a wait and see kind of thing. Speaking of wait and see, we have another image comic story that's going to be coming to television. That's right, your DVR is going to be jam-packed. According to their Hollywood Reporter, Injection from Warren Ellis, Declan Shavley, and Jordi Belair is going to be adapted by Universal Cable Productions. Now, in case you're not familiar with Injection, it's basically about a group of five highly specialized individuals that were brought together by the British government to hypothesize about the future of human culture. And they go ahead and they create an unusual AI, which is using tech, which uses technology, which they use technology and magic to do. And it sort of enters our world. Now, I will say, as someone who read the first arc of Injection, and this still is an ongoing, by the way, it's a trippy story, and it absolutely positively works better on TV. And this is definitely something that you could do on TV. And I'll admit, I, I feel like I'm pretty smart, but when this book came back out in 2015, when this book came out in 2015, I had a little bit of a hard time following it. It, it was very in-depth stuff. And, and then the light bulb went off. I was like, oh, okay, I got it now. I'm good. So I don't think this is necessarily going to be hard to follow, but on TV, you can do more of a long-form storytelling, you know, set the tone in the pilot, and then slowly but surely let your audience know what's going on. As long as you hook them in the pilot, your audience is going to stick around for what happens after that. So I think that this is a good move. I know that there's a ton of comic book shows that are going to be coming out. The list is huge. Almost everything that you watch is going to be based on a comic book now. And I get why you think that that might cause burnout, but nine times out of ten, the general viewing public has no idea that what they're watching has anything to do with a comic book. I know that's a stupid thing to say out loud from our perspective as fans and as nerds, but that's the absolute truth. You know how many people I've talked to that still don't know that Walking Dead was a comic first? I'm not kidding. I am absolutely not kidding. Friends and strangers that I've talked to that do not know that to this day. And you know what? In a way, that's okay. We as fans don't have to be mad about that. As long as you're watching and absorbing the product that we love, I don't care if you know if it's from a comic book or not. I don't need that kind of validation in my fandom from non-comic fans. I just need them to watch the stuff that I want to watch too so it will stick around longer. And yes, that is important. Before I move on, let's go with the discussion of where does this go? Because Universal, of course, so you think it's going to be sci-fi or USA. There's no way that they put this on NBC because Universal Cable Productions, first of all. So do you go sci-fi or USA? Now, USA has a show called Falling Water, which I think tone-wise is somewhat similar to Injection. I know they're two completely different stories, but tone-wise, I feel like they, they sort of suit each other. So it's almost a question of what do you want to do with USA Network because you've got Colony and Mr. Robot on there as well. Do you want to have... A little bit more of a sci-fi and nerd bent to USA Network, or do you want to kind of move away from that and do more stuff like like suits and and the spinoff that they've got for that and other things? I think either way you're fine, but the the only reason I worry about sci-fi is I feel like sci-fi's got such a good lineup going right now, and I know there are a couple different holes that you could fill where you could replace certain shows, which I will not name right now, just in case they don't get picked up. 
You could absolutely do this on sci-fi. I just want to make sure that there's room for it. But if sci-fi gets injection, and it's as good as it can be, sci-fi is going to be a even more of a major player in the cable networks. You see their ratings going up, 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 and we just had the finale of The Magicians, which is absolutely amazing. You've got Krypton knocking it out of the park. The Expanse just started again this past week. And then, of course, you've got Killjoys, which is going to be coming back. I mean... I could sit here probably for the rest of the show and list off all the great things that are on sci-fi, but we don't have time for that. So I just want to make sure there's enough room for this on sci-fi. If not, I don't see any problem with this going to USA Network. One final story that I'm going to make probably much bigger of a deal out of than almost anyone else, and that is Jessica Jones was renewed, Marvel's Jessica Jones, by Netflix, by Netflix, for a third season. Why is that a big deal, James, is what you're asking me. I'll tell you why that's a big deal. Here are all of the shows that are going to be be coming before this third season. That's just what's announced right now of Jessica Jones. We have Luke Cage Season 2, which is going to be on June 22nd, followed by Daredevil Season 3, followed by Iron Fist Season 2, and followed by Punisher Season 2. Now, let's go by the six-month model, shall we? So Luke Cage in June, so you got to figure Daredevil's going to be sometime December, maybe November, maybe move it a little bit. And then so Iron Fist would be June once again. Maybe again you move that up, and then you've got Punisher. So that rounds out 2019 almost, doesn't it? You could squeeze it in there, I guess, if you're Netflix. You could squeeze that in there. But why I'm saying this is what happened to the whole Marvel is done with Netflix thing? You know what I mean? What what happened to that? What happened to the Disney streaming service? We've really gotten no news on that. It seemed like Netflix was going to try to work some stuff out, and then that did or didn't happen, and, and then we really haven't gotten anything beyond that. And for the last I heard was that Marvel was done with Netflix. Well, then, if Netflix is renewing Jessica Jones for a third season, that you almost feel like that's going to be in 2020, do you not, with everything else that's going on? How do you squeeze that also into 2019 unless this is Netflix's clever way of saying, hey, we know that the window is closing. Let's get one more season of Jessica Jones after the way season two went so well. Let's get ourselves one more season of Jessica Jones before this thing is out the door. I'm not convinced that that's necessarily the case. So either there's going to be a deal announced between Marvel and Netflix to keep these shows on there and maybe also on the Disney streaming, maybe a delayed release on the Disney streaming service or delayed release on Netflix is something that they could work out. I'm not I'm saying that something's weird here because when I saw that net when when the Hollywood Reporter and Deadline reported that Netflix renewed Jessica Jones and not Marvel that set off alarm bells to me, and maybe I'm reading way too much into this. Maybe they will speed up the release schedule. Maybe Marvel's saying, hey, we've got to be out of these shows by X amount of time, so let's throw everything together a little bit quicker. That absolutely could happen. I'm going to be honest with you. could happen. But, I don't know, just something feels like we're going to get an announcement that has a little bit more to do with than just Jessica Jones here in the near future. That's going to do it for Nerd News this week. Up next, a couple of interviews talking about the Rampage movie. We'll start things out with Jason Lyles and then hear from and then hear from David on as well. That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Robin Wood Taylor from Gotham, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. 
Well, it's a big week. You know, Rampage the movie is in theaters, and you might see a lot of George, but you won't see any of this guy because he's the man behind George. It's Jason Lyles. How you doing, man? I'm doing fantastic. How are you? I'm doing great, dude. Now, Rampage was actually released on NES in 1986, which was about a year before you were even born. So were you familiar with the game at all when you got the role? I, I was familiar with the game. Uh, not I never played the 1986 original arcade version, but I did play with one of my best friends when I was a kid, the Nintendo 64 Rampage World Tour. So I, I very much knew exactly what the game was when I heard about it. Now, you actually did something pretty unique, man. You actually studied with gorillas for months to prepare to play George. So what yeah. would you say was the most challenging part about bringing that persona to life? Oh man. I mean, it, it was, there's so much because obviously there's the physicality, the, but really the most difficult thing is psychologically embodying a, a gorilla, turning off the things that make us human and, and shedding those and, you know, nodding and smiling and eye contact and asking permission for stuff and, and just getting rid of all of that. And psychologically and emotionally embodying a gorilla without playing or pretending, which is where uh, Terry Notary came in and saved my life because I don't, I could not have done it without him. He of course is King Kong and Kong Skull Island. And he's in all the Planet of the Apes movies as Rocket and trained everybody on those films. And they hired him to train me for several weeks before we, we went into production after I'd done a lot of research myself, but how he is as a performer and an artist, a director, a coach, a teacher. It's just, he's unspeakably amazing. And I couldn't have done it without him. That was actually going to be my next question was about Terry. What was kind of the best piece of advice that he gave you throughout the process? There was actually one day where he said, if you only take one thing away, it's that all you have to do is feel it. You don't have to show me anything. You don't have to spill and just see how my face is showing you what I'm if you just feel it, I'm going to see it. And um, uh, specifically with gorillas, you know, they're very, they're self-aware, but they don't, you know, they don't, they don't like show a lot of facial expressions or anything right. to like, and they don't, the really, the big thing is that they're very meditative, present creatures. Humans, we think about stuff in terms of what we did before, what, what we think we're going to do later and how, how you and I know each other. And we categorize that and we like to be in control of stuff and, and okay, got it. Gorillas don't do that. They just let it all go. They're open, they're vulnerable and, and getting to a place inside of myself and kind of being able to feel through my senses, you know, hearing things and seeing things, but doing it as a gorilla and not as a human, that, that is that that's really how Terry helped me put all that together. And um, that meditative state, I really now it's really bled into anything else I've done. It's, it's really become a foundation for how I create and play a character like he it was life changing working with him. And I just love him to death. He's such a dear friend. I can only imagine. Now, speaking of feelings, Rampage is obviously going to have a ton of action, but do you feel like the relationship between George and Davis Okoye, who's played by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, plays just as big of a role in the movie? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's the heart of the film, really. If, if George doesn't get infected with whatever this is and go on this this journey with Davis trying to save him, there's no movie. And so that that's I think that's where people are going to connect very much like Dwayne has said, you know, with his horses and dogs, he's an animal lover. And it was very easy for him to 
embody this character and care so much for George and, and to be afraid for him and to love him and to be, how can, I got to help my friend and, and I got to get him out of this. And I think people are really going to connect on that level. And with the performance capture that uh, and the performances that they, they tracked and, and kept from set and Weta taking that and turning it into just visual effects, movie magic, you're really going to connect with George because there's a, there's a person underneath there. I mean, those are my blue eyes. That's my voice. And it's just the epitome of movie magic, how they turned me into a gorilla. Weta is just unbelievable. And then you got the rock who doesn't love the rock. That's right. Absolutely, man. We're talking to Jason Lyles, who plays, of course plays George in the rampage movie. Now, Jason, not too many people can say that they're actually taller than Dwayne the Rock Johnson, but you are yeah. now. What was it like working so closely with him? And be honest, did he make you use those arm extensions so you had to crouch down so he could look taller? <laughs> well, I, I had to use the arm extensions as a gorilla, of course. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't think anyone really intimidates Dwayne. You know, I might be four or five inches taller than he is, but he's got like 70 pounds on me. He's got like legs for arms. He's just huge. And he's, He's such a charismatic, loving dude, but he, uh, it's interesting playing an alpha gorilla opposite the alpha male himself, right. Dwayne the Rock Johnson. That's two, two guys kind of button heads and busting each other's chops. You know, a, a 500 pound gorilla doesn't really feel intimidated by the rock. <laughs> and were, were there times actually where you've got to be the big bad gorilla and he's got to kind of jump and take a step back? Was that kind of weird? No, it was awesome because he had to play it. And so it's actually like, it's awesome to do that. And for Dwayne Johnson to have to kind of be taken back or a little, a little, you know, afraid of of what's going on with my 500 pound best friend here. Um, But there's, there's such an understanding between the characters. There's such a love between them. They're very much like Han and Chewie and they're, they're best friends and brothers and father and son and all of that into one. So there, there's such a trust and care between the two of them that I felt instantly with Dwayne. He's just such a great actor to play opposite. So I, it was really easy and, and a ton of fun. I mean, how often do you get to do something like that with, with someone like him? So I had a blast. Yeah, I can only imagine, man. Now, we've seen from the trailers and a whole bunch of other stuff as well that George is not alone. You've also got Lizzie and you've got Ralph there. Mm-hmm. So give us an idea of what it was like to shoot those scenes and how that kind of worked behind the scenes with those interactions. Yeah, well, performance capture, now they basically, you used to have to only, you could only do it on a soundstage. And now you can take it outside. Rise of the Planet of the Apes was the first one to do that. And they've really pushed it since then. So it's a combination of I was on set for every day, every scene, whether it's baby George, uh, present day George, or 35 foot tall George, I was there for Dwayne to be able to look at my eyes. Even the 35 foot tall George, I'm in a scissor lift, really up there. So when he looks up at where George's eyes are, he's looking right at my face. Awesome. awesome. Then, then we do everything on what's called a motion capture volume, which is a carpeted space that they set up in a soundstage with a bunch of cameras above us on a grid capturing this kind of rectangular shaped, probably like 20 by 30 feet uh, space. And they can take that data and scale it down, scale it up wherever. And so we had for different scenes, they would have tape on the ground, like, okay, to your scale, Jason, this is the width of the street in Chicago. And we would just go through the beats of, you know, if I'm, whether it's an action sequence with Lizzie or Ralph or both or whatever, 
and there would be marks. Okay. You're going to come up here and do this here. And, and so it was a lot of just pure imagination with great direction from, from Brad Payton and the entire visual effects team. Now, Jason, motion capture acting seems to be becoming more and more important in the future of the entertainment industry, both in movies and TV, I think. So what do you feel like is the biggest key to having success in those kinds of roles? For the actor, not thinking of it as anything different at all, because it isn't. It's still bringing a character to life physically, psychologically, and vocally. Nothing changes at all. Um, What changes is the... uh, the visual effects team and how they capture your performance, hence the term performance capture. They use different cameras to, to track the dots on me and to be able to put that into George. And then they have a little camera attached to my head. That's getting everything on my face. And then that'll become George's face. And so for the actor, if you, if you really want to, you know, I get a question of how do I become a motion capture actor and be a great actor. And some roles will be human, some will be in practical effects, some will be in performance capture. And so it's the number one thing is to breathe as much life into that character so that when you hand it over to the visual effects team at Weta and all the amazing artists there, they can take that life and put that into the visual effects character. Now, we know that Rampage has a few giant-sized monster animals like we've been talking about, so I have to ask you, what giant animal would terrify you the most, and what animal would mm. you make bigger if you could? A puppy I would make bigger uh, because that just, that's, that's got to be the best thing to cuddle with in the world. But anything, like, you know, I, I think really anything, if it was 100 feet tall or something, would be kind of terrifying. <laughs> like, even like a bunny rabbit. I don't care how cute its little wiggling nose is. That thing's 100 feet tall. The number one animal I would not, probably some kind of snake. Snakes get a bad rap. I know that's. Uh, I know that they're loving creatures like like the rest. But um, I, uh, a snake a snake normal size freezes me. So a hundred foot long snake would. Uh, I don't know what I would do. I'm I would, right there I might with die you, man. I'm getting freaked out just thinking about it. I'm not a snake guy yeah. at all. Or like a ten times bigger she lobe, just massive spider. <laughs> no, thank you. Keep them. Keep them down on the ground. That's I'm good. Well, I'm thinking about that bunny thing now. That that if the bunny sniffs you, it's gonna knock you right <laughs> over, dude. Uh, yeah, that bunny. Yeah, that's a, and think how quickly they can hop. But times a hundred. That's that's a fast bunny. That's a really fast bunny. Yeah, Peter Cottontail would be crushing the bunny trail if that was the case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, before I let you go, Jason, I wanted to ask you about Death Note as well, because of course, of course, you played yeah. Reed, and of course, which was voiced by Willem Dafoe. Now, what yeah. are the chances you think we could see a sequel, and would you actually be open to that? I've read online that there are that I, I think there was something just a couple of days after it came out on Netflix, where Netflix said, "Yeah, sequels." Um, I haven't heard any details beyond that, but I would love to, man. I mean, I, you say, of course, Jason is in, is in death note, but I think I'm, I'm very well hidden in plain sight since it's of course, Willem Dafoe's voice. Uh, but that's my long gangly body. I would love to do it again. I mean, sharing a role with Willem Dafoe, come on, that's ridiculous. Like I would, he's such a nice guy and to be able to tag him in and say, all right, I did it on set. You just, oof, you just talk. And let your incredible voice be magic. And I, I, I can't thank him enough for being such an awesome teammate in that. But I had, I had a blast doing Death Note. And I am all for as many times as they want to put me in that very tight, very sweaty leather. 
Well, I know that we're, what we're all in for is Rampage. Go to theaters, see it multiple times because we know it's going to be amazing. And keep your eye out for George. I don't think it'll be hard to miss. He's played by this guy, Jason Lyles. Thank you so much for joining me this week. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, man. Have a great day. And yeah, everybody, go have fun with Rampage. It is such a ride. Get some popcorn, take the family. It's, you're going to have a blast. Well, you know we're excited for the Rampage movie to hit theaters on April the 13th, and this guy is actually going to be a part of it. It's David on. David, how you doing, man? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. So, how much of a video game fan are you, and were you aware of the original Rampage game before being cast? Oh, yeah, completely. Um, my brother and I, we used to, there was a diner that my family used to go to every Sunday, and my brother and I would just play it, and then my mom would have to drag us off. Uh, the arcade, and uh, yeah, you know, she saw me eat eat like the red red dressed woman for like the bonus points one time, and she she was absolutely nice. horrified, and nice. she was like, "No, we, you can't play this at the church." And I was like, <laughs> "It's really fun, you know." So, but I mean, every single time we would still get back on the machine, um, and then when I heard they were making a movie, I was like, "Dwayne Johnson, yeah, of course, that totally makes sense." And then uh, they asked me to sell tape for it. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I really want this job. So, yeah, definitely was excited for it. So let's talk about video games and video game movies in general, because they've kind of gotten a lot of criticism over the years. So what do you think actually makes the Rampage movie different? Yeah, I mean, I think the complicated thing with video games is it's different to play it than it is to tell a story. And I think the good thing about Rampage is that there wasn't really that much of a story. No, in the not at all. <laughs> not at all. It's, it's monsters crashing buildings. Um, and so I think they had a more open, they have a more open palette to really create a story into it and set the world. So I think they, they captured, I mean, you can see it from the trailer. I think they captured the spirit of the video game very, very closely and just layered in story and you know a buddy comedy with Dwayne the Rock Johnson and George the Ape so I think I'm excited for it so not a lot is actually known about your character yet so how much can you tell us about Kaplan I can't say too much in detail but I think I can say just based off of what's kind of shown in the trailers is that this movie is all about kind of where your allegiances lie and um, Dwayne Johnson obviously his priority is George his best friend and Unfortunately, that can get in the way of a lot of other groups that are um, afraid of these animals. And so, uh, you know, different allegiances, it's not always bad guys versus good guys. Sometimes good guys, their priorities just conflict with each other. Is there a real life aspect to this where you're kind of looking at it from that perspective and going, okay, you know, as unrealistic as this might be, if this was actually happening, how would you react? Does the movie kind of deal with that a little bit? Uh, yeah, I think um, the director, Brad Payton, he did San Andreas, you know, and I thought he, he did a, such a fantastic job with trying to tackle the feeling of what, what a catastrophic event like that would really feel like. Um, and I think he still brought the same level of integrity to this. I know it's crazy with 50-foot monsters or whatnot but for me it was a lot of imagination work acting wise but um i did i did survive through like a category three tornado one time in college wow and um yeah and it was it went right over our campus and our tas and ras they weren't they weren't trained in how to manage that crisis so they just brought us into the basement but the basement had windows so the windows blew in the dust blew in 
and you could hear this giant entity outside just like whirling away. So I kind of tapped into that and was like, oh, if that was a 50-foot monster, that's kind of how it would feel. So wow. yeah, it was, yeah, I tried to use that experience a little bit. Not exactly something you want to have to tap into a whole lot, probably. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I mean, otherwise, it's like, but otherwise, it's just fun. It's every little kid's dream come true to, you know, play in that sandbox of imagination of all the different toys to try to destroy the monsters. Yeah. So that's a dream come true. Now, David, some people might not know, but you actually have worked in visual effects at one point. You've got credits with Transformers Dark of the Moon and Ender's Game. So how do you feel yeah. like the visual effects in Rampage stack up to the movies you've worked on in the past? Oh, uh, it was really fantastic. Actually, I mean, not that I was going to ever turn it down, but when I found out that Weta, Weta Digital down in New Zealand who did, you know, um, the Planet of the Apes movies and the Lord of the Rings movies. When I knew that that team was on it, I was like, I knew this was going to look fantastic. It was going to feel great. So I know it's definitely top notch. And I think based on the trailer, I think everyone can agree that it's definitely up in tier one level of visual effects. Talking to David Ahn, who plays Kaplan in the Rampage movie that's going to be coming out on April the 13th. Now, David, everybody knows about Dwayne The Rock Johnson, the performer, the actor, but he's also listed as a producer on Rampage. So talk a little bit about him in that role and what it was like working with him. I will just say that he's, I mean, I don't know specifically how how he's producing, but I do know that he's, he's a natural-born leader, um, and he really knows how to keep everyone positive and, and really excited about the project. So um, I know he's getting more involved in the creative process early on and later on, just trying to steer the ship. And when I got to set, everyone knows that The Rock is huge, but I didn't really realize how big he was mm-hmm. until I saw him. And I was like, wow, his arm is literally the size of my head. And it took me <laughs> like a day. I was like trying to compare my head to his arm. And I was like, yeah, I think it really is bigger. And I was like, man, this guy is huge. And and then I was just thinking to myself, I was like, yeah, of course they cast him as Hercules. Like, of course he would. Yeah, and I see him, and I just pretty much give up all hope of working out ever because it's like, I'm never going <laughs> to get there, man. Right, 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 right. You're like, uh, that's not humanly possible to achieve. So, right. yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go a different route, yeah. Not to mention, the guy's got, well, like, 80 movies out at the same time. It's like, where do you even find time to hit the gym? Yeah, right. I mean, I heard he wakes up at like 4.30 in the morning and just starts working out. Um, the guy is an absolute workhorse. And I think his experience doing the touring on the Wrestling Federation, I mean, that must have set up such an incredible work ethic. And, you know, he was juggling so many projects at the same time and just was trying, you know, was always a joy in front of everybody. I was like, that guy is such an inspiration to me. Absolutely. Now, David, we know there are some enormous, monstrous animals in Rampage, so I have to ask you, what giant animal would terrify you the most, and what one small animal would you make bigger if you could? Ooh, <laughs> great question. A giant animal that would, oh, it would definitely be like a spider, a giant shelob-type spider would scare the bejesus out of me. Tiny animal that I would make bigger... Probably like a rabbit or like a chinchilla. I think that'd be pretty cute. To I just could be see able that. to like, you know, just like dive into them and it's like all plush. 
<laughs> so you're looking for the extra fluff factor. <laughs> yeah, the extra the fluff factor. That's really what it is. Like one of those giant, like girly poof pillows that they have, kind of like that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, my uh, I had a girlfriend that had an obsession with pandas because she just wanted to jump into his belly because she thought pandas were really <laughs> fluff and soft. And when we when we went to finally do some type of like feeding sanctuary where you can like touch pandas but also feed them and stuff. Um, their hair is so coarse, and she's like, "My dream is broken. <laughs> I can't do it anymore." And yeah. so is the dreams of anyone listening to this that's ever wanted to go to <laughs> oh, pet a I'm panda. Sorry. I'm so sorry, everybody. They're so very cute. They're very cute. Go save the pandas. Everyone save the pandas. <laughs> now let's switch gears a little bit, David, because we talked about we talked about the comic book world. We're going to talk about the comic book world a little bit because you actually. Got to do an episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. in Season 4, and we were talking off the air about how you're a big comic book fan. So if you could yeah. enter the Marvel realm again, or even maybe join the G- DC Universe, is there any particular role you get your eye on that you might like to play at some point? I mean, I've always been hoping that they do something with Amadeus Cho from the Hulk universe. I think that guy is, I think that character is really cool. I love the MCU. I love what they're doing with comics. I mean... I don't know how old you are exactly, but I, I, I'm pretty sure we're in the same generation that there was a while when comic book movies were terrible. Oh, like, totally. Really bad. Yeah, oh, totally. You know, like the, like the Roger Corman just kind of like made quickly type of movies. But to see this golden era where, man, they're just Black Panther was fantastic. It's just it's so exciting for me as just a fan to see everything I read as a kid coming to life in such high quality. So, yeah, I mean, there's that, there's anime, there's the Akira movies. I know they've been trying to make those for a while. But, yeah, I'd love to jump into that world. Well, I mean, they're getting there. looks like they're getting ready to kind of almost reset everything after Infinity War, man. You never know. I mean, if Bruce Banner goes down, they're going to need Amadeus Cho, just saying. Yeah, that is one of the – that movie is also going to be fantastic. It's going to be a great April. I was telling all my friends, I was like, man, I'm so excited for Rampage. And then a couple of weeks later, Avengers comes out too. I was like, this is geek heaven. Yeah, you guys are almost like back to back. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Summer's coming fast. Absolutely. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of people that will be talking about Rampage on social media when it comes out on April the 13th. Now, without spoiling anything, give me one mm-hmm. hashtag that you think describes the movie that you would want to see trending? Hmm. Hashtag big enough. Question. <laughs> right. Nice. Yeah, that works yeah, for me, right? man. Does that work? Yeah. I yeah, think that'll do it. Giant crocodiles, <laughs> flying wolves, giant gorillas. Yeah. That, that sounds awesome to me. And Rampage is going to hit theaters nationwide on April the 13th. You can actually get your advance tickets as well if you want to do that and we'll see Kaplan on there when we do it's David on thank you so much for joining me this week thank you so much man had a good time by now you should definitely be good and hyped to see Rampage the movie which is in theaters now go see it looks like it's gonna be a lot of fun and a lot of great emotion as well as the guys were just talking about that's gonna do it for this week's edition of the down and nerdy podcast again thanks to Jason Lyles who plays George and David on who plays Kaplan in Rampage the movie for joining me this week if you want to find out more interviews that we've done on the show go downandnerdypodcast.com got a lot of the past shows up there also follow us on social media facebook.com slash downandnerdy at downandnerdy757 on twitter and on instagram as well remember one thing you never have to apologize for being a nerd so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds